Welcome to this episode of Beads Podcast, a weekly reflection on church history with Dr. Michael A.G. Haken. Dr. Haken serves as the chair and professor of church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. He's also a fellow of the Royal Historical Society in recognition of his contributions to historical scholarship. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. A few years after I had completed my doctoral studies in 4th century pneumatology and exegesis, and I started teaching at what was then Central Baptist Seminary in Toronto, now Heritage Bible College and Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario, I came to realize that I would have to develop another area of scholarly expertise. For very few of the Baptist congregations with which I had contact were keenly interested in men like Athanasius and Basil of Caesarea, men who had figured prominently in my doctoral studies. At a much later date, after I had developed a keen interest in bridge Baptists and dissenters in the long 18th century and was giving papers and lectures in this area of church history, I was increasingly conscious that while fare from this second area of study was quite acceptable to evangelical audiences, a cloud of suspicion still hung over the entire field of the ancient church. The truth of the matter is that far too many modern-day evangelicals are either ignorant of or quite uncomfortable with the church fathers. No doubt years of their decrying tradition and battling Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy with their saints from the ancient church have contributed in part to the state of ignorance and unease. Then, certain strains of anti-intellectual fundamentalism have discouraged an interest in that far country of church history. And the strangeness of much of that era of the ancient church has proven a barrier to some evangelicals in their reading about the early centuries of Christianity. Finally, there is an ardent desire to be people of the book on the part of evangelicals, which is an eminently worthy desire but this has led to a lack of interest in other students of Scripture from that earliest period of the Church's history after the Apostolic Era. Well did Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a man who certainly could not be accused of elevating tradition to the level of, let alone over, Scripture, once note, It seems odd that certain men who talk so much of what the Holy Spirit reveals to them should think so little of what he has revealed to others. J.I. Packer who has recently gone to be with the Lord, has once said, Tradition is the fruit of the Spirit's teaching activity from the ages, as God's people have sought understanding of Scripture. It is not infallible, but neither is it negligible, and we impoverish ourselves if we disregard it. Thankfully, this has begun to change. We who are evangelicals are beginning to grasp afresh that evangelicalism is, as Timothy George has rightly put it, a renewal movement within historic Christian orthodoxy. We have begun to rediscover that which many of our evangelical and reformed forebears knew and treasured, namely the pearls of the ancient church. The French reformer John Calvin, for example, was a keen student of the church fathers. He didn't always agree with them, even when it was a case of one of his favorites, like Augustine of Hippo, but he was deeply aware of the value of knowing their thought and drawing upon the riches of their written works for elucidating the Christian faith in his own day. In the following century, the Puritan theologian John Owen, rightly called by some the Calvin of England, was not slow to turn to the experience of the one he called Holy Austin, namely Augustine, to provide him with a typology of conversion. Yet again, 
in the 18th century, the particular Baptist John Gill played a key role in preserving Trinitarianism among his fellow Baptists at a time when other Protestant bodies, for instance the English Presbyterians, large tracts of Anglicanism, were unable to retain a firm grasp on this utterly vital biblical and patristic doctrine. Gill's The Doctrine of the Trinity stated and vindicated was an affected defense of the fact that there is but one God, that there is a plurality in the Godhead, that there are three divine persons in it, that the Father is God, the Son God, and the Holy Spirit God, that these are distinct in personality, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. But a casual perusal of this treatise by Gill reveals at once Gill's indebtedness to patristic Trinitarian thought and exegesis, for he quotes authors like Justin Martyr, Tertullian, and Theophilus of Antioch. One final example of earlier evangelical appreciation of the Fathers must suffice. John Sutcliffe, a late 18th century English Baptist, a very close friend of William Carey and Andrew Fuller, was so impressed by the letter to Diognetus, a second century apologetic work, which he wrongly supposed to have been written by Justin Martyr, that he translated it afresh for the Biblical Magazine, a Calvinistic publication with a small circulation. He sent it to the editor of the periodical with a commendation that this second century work is one of the most valuable pieces of ecclesiastical antiquity. Why should evangelical Christians then engage the thought and experience of these early Christian witnesses? First, study of the fathers, like any historical study, liberates us from the present. Every age has its own distinct outlook, presuppositions which remain unquestioned even by opponents. The examination of another period of thought forces us to confront our innate prejudices, which would go unnoticed otherwise. As contemporary historical theologian Carl Truman has rightly noted, the very alien nature of the world in which the fathers operated challenges us to think more critically about ourselves in our own context. We may not, for example, sympathize much with radically ascetic monasticism, but when we understand it as a 4th century answer to the age-old question of what a committed Christian looks like, at a time when it was starting to be easy and respectable to be a Christian, we can at least use it as an anvil on which to hammer out our own contemporary response to such a question. Or consider the work of Gustav Aulen in his classic study of the Atonement, Christus Victor. Aulen argues that an objective study of the patristic concept of the Atonement will reveal a motif which has received little attention in post-Reformation Christianity. The idea of the Atonement, that is, as a divine conflict and victory in which Christ fights and overcomes the evil powers of this world, under whom man has been held in bondage. According to Aulin, what is commonly accepted as the New Testament doctrine of the Atonement, the forensic theory of satisfaction, may in fact be a concept quite foreign to the New Testament. Whether his argument is right or not, and I think he is quite wrong, can only be returned, determined by a fresh examination of the sources, both New Testament and patristic. Then the Fathers can provide us with a map for the Christian life. It's quite exhilarating to stand on the east coast of North America or the west coast to watch the Atlantic or Pacific surf, to hear the pound of the waves, and if close enough, feel the salty spray. But this experience will be of little benefit in sailing to Ireland and the British Isles or sailing to the Philippines. For this, a map is needed, a map based upon the accumulated experience of thousands of voyagers. 
Similarly, we need such a map for the Christian life. Experiences are fine and good, but they will not serve as a suitable foundation for our lives in Christ. To be sure, we have the divine scriptures, an ultimately sufficient foundation for all of our needs as believers. But the thought of the fathers can help us enormously in building on this foundation. A good example is provided by the pneumatology of Athanasius in his letters to Serapion, Bishop of Thamuis in the Nile Delta of Egypt. The present day has seen a resurgence of interest in the person of the Holy Spirit. This is admirable, but also fraught with danger if the Spirit is conceived of, of apart from Christ. Yet Athanasius' key insight in these letters was that, quote, from our knowledge of the Son, we may be able to have true knowledge of the Spirit, end of quote. The Spirit, in other words, cannot be divorced from the Son. Not only did the Son send and give the Spirit, but the Spirit is the principle of the Christ life within us. Many have fallen to fanatical enthusiasm because they fail to realize this basic truth. The Spirit cannot be separated by the Son. Or consider the landmark that has been set up on the landscape of church history by the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, commonly called the Nicene Creed. This document, while by no means infallible, is nevertheless a sure guide to the biblical doctrine of God. It should never be dismissed of being, as being of no value. To do so shows a distinct lack of wisdom and disturbment. I vividly recall a conversation in the 1990s with an academic administrator. During the conversation, the subject of the Nicene Creed was raised, and this particular individual remarked cavalierly that there was no way he would be bound by a man-made document like this creed. Honestly, I was horrified by his dismissive approach, and considered and still do that such a statement is the height of folly and the sure road to theological disaster. Third, the Fathers may also in some cases help us to understand the New Testament. We have had too disparaging a view of patristic exegesis, and I've come close to considering the exposition of the Fathers as a consistent failure to understand the New Testament. For instance, Cyril of Jerusalem, a 4th century author, in his interpretation of 1 Corinthians 7.5, which concerns temporary absence of sexual relations between married couples for the sake of prayer, assumes without question that the prayer is liturgical and communal. Cyril may be guilty of an anachronism, for he was a leader in the hallowing of time, that is, the observance of holy seasons. Nevertheless, there is good evidence that such special communal times of prayer in some form or other are quite early. The liturgical life of the Church of Jerusalem in the 4th century was not that of Corinth in the 1st, but nevertheless there were links. And it may well be that it is Protestant commentators who are guilty of anachronism when they uniformly assume that Paul meant private prayer, not communal prayer. Such religious individualism is more conceivable in the Protestant West than in 1st century Corinth. Again, in recent discussions of the Pauline doctrine of salvation, it has been asserted by the proponents of the so-called New Perspective that the classical Reformed view of justification has little foundation in Paul or the rest of the New Testament, but is more a product of the thinking of Martin Luther or John Calvin. Yet in the second century letter to Diognetus, which I've already referred to, we find the following argument that sounds like it had been lifted straight from the pages of Luther, but of course it wasn't. The author has been arguing that God revealed his plan of salvation to none but his beloved Son until human beings realized their utter and complete inability to gain heaven by their own strength. Then, when men were conscious of their sin and impending judgment, God sent his Son, marked in his character by utter sinlessness, to die in the stead of humanity, who are indwelt by radical depravity. What is expressed here 
is very much in full accord with a classical reform view of the meaning of Christ's death for our salvation. As T.F. Torrance has generally observed, there is a fundamental coherence between the faith of the New Testament and that of the early church. The failure to discern this coherence in some quarters evidently has its roots in the strange gulf imposed by analytical methods between the faith of the primitive church and the historical Jesus. In any case, I have always found it difficult to believe that we modern scholars understand the Greek of the New Testament better than the early Greek fathers themselves. We also need to read and know the fathers since they are sometimes subjected to simply bad history or bad press. For example, in Dan Brown's monumental bestseller, The Da Vinci Code, the hero Robert Langdon discovers that contemporary expressions of Christianity, especially those of the Roman Catholic Church, have no sound historical basis. According to Brown's novel, it was not until the reign of the early 4th century Roman Emperor Constantine that the Bible, in particular the New Testament, was collated. In fact, according to the novel, it was Constantine who had the New Testament as we know it drawn up in order to suppress an alternative perspective on Jesus as a merely human prophet. The novel expresses the view that it was at the early 4th century Council of Nicaea, which was astutely manipulated by power-hungry Constantine for his own ends, that Jesus Christ was turned into a deity and became for the first time an object of worship. Jesus' divine status was ratified by a relatively close vote of the council, according to this novel. Both of these events took place in order to conceal the fact that Jesus was actually married to Mary Magdalene, had a child by her, and that Jesus intended that Mary be the founder of the church. Key Christian teachings are thus the result of a power move by Constantine and other males in order to squash women. As Brown, as one of his characters say, it was all about power. Brown clearly intends these claims to be more than key aspects of the conspiratorial ambience of his novel. As Greg Clark, director of the Centre for Apologetic Scholarship and Education at New College, University of New South Wales, has rightly noted, Dan Brown's book has evangelistic intentions and is meant to change our lives. Dr. Alba Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where I teach, rightly sees the book as a not-so-subtle attack on the central truths of biblical Christianity. Since Brown makes clear references to the patristic era to support his theory, it's necessary that any response involve accurate knowledge of what actually did take place at Nicaea and what the 2nd and 3rd century church did believe about Jesus. Not only is Brown deeply mistaken about Nicaea, where the decision to embrace the Nicene Creed was not by a slim margin, as he seems to intimate, but was overwhelmingly voted by the majority of bishops uh, uh, at the council. But the church in the 2nd and 3rd centuries had a very high Christology, in which Jesus Christ was worshipped as God. Here's one good example. The 2nd century preacher, Melito of Sardis. Contemporaries regarded Melito as having lived a life remarkable for its piety, though knowledge of his career is scanty. Of his 16 or so writings whose titles are known, only one is fully extant, the sermon, the homily on the passion. Of the rest, only fragments exist. In this sermon, Melito, talking about Israel's failure to recognize who Christ was, says this, You did not see God. You did not perceive the Lord Israel. 
You did not recognize the firstborn of God, begotten before the morning star, who adorned the light, who lit up the day, who divided the darkness, who fixed the first boundary, who hung the earth, who tamed the abyss, who stretched out the firmament, who furnished the world, who ranged the stars in the heavens, who lit up the great lights, who made the angels in heaven, who there established thrones, who formed humanity on the earth. Here we see a rehearsal of Christ's sovereignty over creation, which by implication is a celebration of his deity. A little further on in the sermon, Melito explores the paradox of the cross and ends with an open confession of Christ's deity. Thus, he who hung the earth is hanging. He who fixed the heavens in place has been fixed in place. He who laid the foundations of the universe has been laid on a tree. The master has been profaned. God has been murdered. As Bart Ehrman, himself no friend to Orthodox Christianity, has stated in response to Dan Brown, scholars who study the history of Christianity will find it bizarre at best to hear Brown claim that Christians before the Council of Nicaea did not consider Jesus to be divine. And thus, when the creedal statement issued at Nicaea declared its belief in Jesus' divinity, it was simply affirming what had been the central conviction of the Church between the apostolic era and the time of the Council itself. But to know that, one must study the Fathers. Beads Podcast is in partnership with h and Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.